0: Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit Contrast.Church. How are we doing? Welcome to the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and grab those. We're gonna be in Matthew 21. Uh, if you don't have one and you'd like one, we have tons in the back that you can steal and keep forever. I promise. Uh, normally, I would say Jerry will get you one, but Jerry's currently busy, so <laughs> someone else will get you one. <laughs> uh, but we're gonna be Matthew 21. If you have your phones as well, you can keep uh, uh, along there. Also, if you have anything you want to thank you, Jerry. If you have anything you want to write, like take notes and all that, I'd encourage you because today's a little bit of a. As you can tell, we're gonna have a little bit to write down, which would be great. So. As you can tell, we are in this storm, Matthew part 6. We've been going through Matthew for over a year, uh, just sitting and observing Matthew writing to basically first century Jews proving that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one to come. He is the Messiah. And uh, so Matthew uses a ton of Old Testament scriptures and laces them through his story. And uh, what's fascinating about Matthew is that he uses a lot of terminology like son of God, Messiah, and all that type of language about Jesus just kind of proving who he really is. And so today is fun because as we get into the storm, and even as you kind of felt with the bumper video, it's an incredibly tense uh, moment and week. You see, the storm is from when Jesus enters Jerusalem into his last week uh, on earth in in ministry as he dies on Friday and then resurrects, as we know, on Easter Sunday. So normally, last week, we would celebrate that the week before Easter. It would be Palm Sunday. Uh, But we're actually going to take the next three months and study this week of this, this last week, we call it Holy Week or Passion Week. And uh, you might not know this, but in the four gospel accounts of Jesus, at minimum a quarter, if not more, of each of those accounts is on just this week. So there's a lot of content and a lot of importance. And for us to sort of feel the weight of the tension that's going on is incredibly important. That's why we call it the storm. Because it is three forces clashing. It is Jesus and his ministry and his kingdom with a bunch of followers behind him entering the city. It is the Romans who are in control of Jerusalem and are subjugating it, meaning they have control of it, but they sort of let them do what they want for the most part. And then you have the Israelites, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, the Jewish people. And they are all in this city together in the most important week of the year, Passover week, where they come and they remind themselves of the fact that they are not able to do it on their own, that they uh, need to atone or make right their sin before God. And so they... Whether they could afford a chicken or a lamb, they would sacrifice it with a temple. Priests would kill it, be like, your sins are atoned for, right? So it's this big event. And so as we enter into Jerusalem, Jesus already had this entry that I talked about, was really provocative. A lot of times we get excited and we're like, Hosanna and palm branches. But there's a lot of people that are not happy. There's a lot of people that have no idea what's going on. Even Jesus himself is, is sort of feeling this emotional weight, like sort of weeping for the reality of the city and the people. And so it's this in, incredibly intense moment. and then you go from there and he enters to the east side of Jerusalem into directly into the temple. And then he goes into the temple and he flips over tables and he's like, "This is a house of prayer, not a den of robbers." And because a lot of the table, money changers have kind of been ex- like using exchange rates and taking advantage of people and stuff like that. And so he sets the, the, the temple straight, and then he heals some people, right Like the lame and blind just come to him, and he starts healing them in the temple. And then he leaves, and Jesus and his, his party will stay outside Jerusalem for the whole week pretty much because it's, it's packed. I mean, there's six times as many people there that there should be. So they're staying in Bethany or on this mountain, and then there's this valley. We didn't we talk about like, the Olive Garden and the Garden of Gethsemane and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, I mentioned Olive Garden last week and had no idea what I was doing. And someone's like, you mean the restaurant? And I'm like, no. I guess it'd be an olive orchard. I don't know if someone should look that up and see if that's what you call it. But the olive area... And then he would go back into the, uh, Jerusalem each day. And so that's what he is doing. And so that takes us to Matthew 21, starting in verse 18 here, where we see uh, this idea of a fig tree. Now, before we get into figs, I want to talk about another fruit that is very near and dear to my heart. Or right, Raise your hand if you're a big fan of raspberries. Anybody? Okay. Those of you who aren't, maybe you just haven't tried one, because they're the best. You're like candy, right? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who has a price point, though. You know, like the the standard going rate, I feel like is like four bucks, and when they're on sale below three, below two, sometimes Kroger will do 88 cents. You best believe I'm just, I'm eating raspberries the entire week. I don't care about the ramifications. I'm eating all those raspberries. Big fan. Now, the beautiful thing about Ohio, moving, I moved from Arizona, um, where everything wants to either stab or bite you or poke you, uh, is we have raspberry. Like you can pick raspberries in Ohio, right? How great is that? Um, so if you're, like, sick of the Midwest, raspberry picking is a great time. And it usually falls around my birthday, which is in July. And so the last two years, I've went raspberry picking. And uh, this last year, I got really excited because black raspberries are my favorite. You can't get those at the store, typically. Um, but I just love them. I think they're so much better than red raspberries. Way better than blackberries, right? I mean, come on. And uh, so I go, I go picking with Sarah and, and, I think, Jeannie at the time. And uh, we get there and, you know, there's like a season for like a month, maybe a little more, if that, where you can pick them. And they had rows of red raspberries, they had rows of black raspberries. I'm pumped to get some black raspberries. We get there and the lady's like, hey, like, slim pickings out there for the black raspberries. You know, every, they, they let you have a certain amount of people per hour and everyone's on the red raspberries and no one's in the black raspberries. And you know me, I'm like, I'm going to find some black raspberries. So I go down that aisle, uh, the row or whatever of them, and, you know, sure enough, like, you look at face value, and there's, like, nothing. Just green leaves everywhere. But I'm, like, I'm getting on my hands and knees. I'm, like, standing, because I'm tall, I'm, like, standing up over the bushes. I start to find some. But it takes me a long time. I don't even get, like, ne- I don't even, like, nearly fill the court. But it, I, it happened. And then I go to the red raspberries, and they're everywhere. I mean, you could grab, like, six with one hand. I mean, just everywhere. And that idea of, of raspberries and sort of bearing fruit is what Jesus is going to talk about with figs. Figs, maybe uh, you've eaten some figs and uh, they're not probably incredibly like, common that we eat them a lot, more Mediterranean. Um, but figs in, the, in this area were incredibly common and they were used as a symbol a lot of times in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament has several places where they refer to Israel as this fig, as this fruit, like bearing fruit, like a fig tree. The most common is in Micah, and you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it, and you'll sort of get the posture of of what Micah is doing here. Micah is a prophet, and he is telling Israel about their impending doom uh, with Babylon and exile. Yeah. And so he says this, and this is in Micah three, Listen to this, you leaders of the family of Jacob, you rulers of the nation of Israel. You hate justice and pervert all that is right. You build Zion. Zion is David's term for Jerusalem, basically. Uh, through bloody crimes, Jerusalem through unjust violence. Her leaders take bribes when they decide legal cases. Her priests claim rulings for profit. That's not good. Her prophets read omens for pay, yet they claim to trust the Lord and say, the Lord is among us. Disaster will not overtake us. Therefore, because of you, Zion, you will be plowed up like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the Temple Mount will become a hill overgrown with brush." Then later in Micah 7, he says, Woe is me, for I am like those gathering fruit and those harvesting grapes, or black raspberries, where there is no grape clusters to eat and no fresh figs that my stomach craves. Faithful men have disappeared from the land and there are no godly men left. They all want to ambush and shed blood. They hunt their own brother with a net. They're experts at doing evil. Government officials and judges take bribes. Still have that today. Prominent men announce what they wish, and they plan it out. And the best of them is like a thorn. The godly are like a thorn bush. The time of their confusion is now. And so Micah gives us this like stark, just, this is not going well. Literally everybody that's supposed to be in charge and steward power well is just corrupt, taking advantage of the priests, the government officials, everyone. And Babylon comes and destroys everything, right? And then we have this rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And so at this point now, we have seen the Jewish people comfortably sitting in Jerusalem. Though Rome owns it, they're still able to practice. And so they're sort of okay. They're, you know, not completely happy. But it's better than being in exile and not even being able to be in Jerusalem. And so they rebuild the temple. I talked last week about how uh, Judah the Hammer, Judah Maccabeus, had basically came into Jerusalem and took it back for the Jewish people and was almost like a Messiah, very Messiah-esque in terms of his entry, his ministry, uh, what he sought to do, cleansing the temple. But he's a man and a sinner, and his family caused a bunch of drama like a soap opera, and it just dissolved and broke up, and then now Rome is back in control. So Jewish people have experienced what they were hoping to be the reality of what, you know, the state of who they are and what they're hoping for and longing for, and everyone is waiting for this Messiah to make, make things right. Now, when we read the Old Testament, what we see is a pattern of this where basically they, God promises them covenant love and blessing and then they just like immediately throw it in the trash. And then all this hardship happens because they choose their own way and then, and then someone takes them over basically and the Lord frees them or saves them and it's just this continual cycle, right? And the Jewish people are just so um, impatient and they're just massive failures. And and so what what we see and what is kind of the climate at which Jesus is entering into is a really sad, devastating, broken system that we tried to, like, a lipstick on a pig, we tried to put lipstick on. Like, from the outside, you think, as a Jewish person, the temple's operating. People are atoning sin, right? Like, you would think, oh, this is actually not that bad. But then as you really start to think about it and process through the depths of it, you realize, oh, my gosh, like, there's some serious problems here. We're just playing this game, right? We're not actually... Living as though God calls us to. We're not bearing fruit as a nation. And so look at Matthew 21. This is uh, starting in verse 18. This is where Jesus brings in the fruit. Now, early in the morning, as he returned to the city, so they're coming back up from the mountain, down the hill, going to Jerusalem, he was hungry. And after noticing a fig tree by the road, he went to it and found nothing on it except leaves. He said to it, Never again will there be fruit from you, and the fig tree withered at once. Now, you know, this is unique in itself. The second part is also, like, you know, interesting in light of what's happening. But basically, Jesus is on his way down the hill. He sees a fig tree. It's a little early in the season at this time for figs to be ripe, but this tree is promising, right? It's got tons of leaves, leaves, then figs, right? And you go up to it, and there's literally no fruit. And Jesus, like, curses this tree and, and withers, right? Now, if you're a disciple, and you're like, man, like, Jesus doesn't get mad very often, and it seems a little random. Like, is he just cranky? Did he not have his RX bar? Like, what is happening that he just, like, cursed this tree for no reason? And I would even, like, you know, we would even say, like, well, like, it wasn't the fig season, Jesus. Come on, you know? Like, come on. It, that, it was promising, but but what's happening is the leaves are sort of the the Pharisees, like, continuing to... to Follow the law and to do sacrifices, but when you got to the when you actually observed the Israelites, they had no fruit. They had no fruit, and it's important to define fruit for the Israelites. What was the Israelites' fruit? And it's just this simple: it was just following the law. God created the law. A lot of times we think God only created the law so that they might not sin, which is true, right? It, it, he's trying to help them stay in right standing with Him so that He can continue to flourish in their presence. But the law does another thing as well. When you follow the law, it also has a uh, effect of affecting the rest of the world. Meaning, when we live, as what God intended as prototypical humanity on earth and following the laws and worshiping Yahweh, the rest of the world will see that and receive benefit and want to be like that. That was why people ask, like, why did God just like, choose one random nation? Why didn't he choose all the world? Like, right? He's showing you through this nation how everyone is supposed to live, how everyone is supposed to uh, worship Yahweh and live in right standing with not only Him, but then everyone around Him. And that's why Israel is constantly referred to as this light on a hill. Jerusalem is a city on a hill, right? It's it's supposed to give light to everyone. So not only are they supposed to follow the law for their own hearts, but that we know this, out of good um, relationship with even Jesus, that it, it outflows into everyone around us, right? We We're better standing with other relationships. We're maybe slow to anger. We're more patient. We're more generous, right? Like everything that we received from Jesus becomes just an automatic outflowing. It's just the way it works, right? And Israel was not only in wrong standing with their own hearts with God, they were breaking all the rules, being selfish, right? They were also a terrible influence on everyone else. I mean literally they would nobody wanted to be like them. Like they, they flirt with the Canaanites and marry a bunch of them and then before you know it, they're sacrificing kids and all this crazy stuff and they just became completely polluted. And you take that to today's world, and you, you maybe heard this, where some people are like, Yeah, Christians don't, well, the Christians I know don't look any different than anybody else. And, we're, and it's exactly like that. We are called to be salt and light. Christians, followers of Jesus, should be different, not only for their own sake and their own relationship with Jesus, but that everybody sees that. And the fruit of that is, is people are attracted and want to be a part of that. So Israel's not only dropping the ball for their own nation and their own selves, but they are failing as being the prototype for humanity on earth. So there's a massive um, failure here and Jesus is like not messing around. I mean, he's cursing this tree and it withers and it dies. Now, I don't know if you've ever like seen a tree die, but it takes a long time, right? And in this moment, it's just done. And he's like, I've had enough of you. And we think, oh, that's harsh, right? That's extreme. But in light of the symbol, this fig tree has had several hundred years to bear fruit and it hasn't. I mean, think about this. The Israelites have been going through this just hundreds of years of exile and selfishness and like it's just this circle of failure and continually like just going against God and so Jesus had enough and, he, and this is what he is doing when he's stepping into Jerusalem for this week is he's revealing the, the how truly corrupt and, and off the Israelites are and how they truly needed a savior because the system was broken and not working for them and this is his his sim- symbol as he goes back into Jerusalem like you had, you had your chance to bear fruit, and you've, you've given me nothing. Your, your sole purpose, Israel, is to follow the law, to honor God, and to, to, to show the light to other people, and you haven't done it. A fig tree's sole purpose is to make figs, okay? It's to make fruit, so like it can provide, right? When you plant an orchard, you don't plant pine trees. You plant apple trees or pomegranate or fig because you're wanting to yield the fruit from it. And this fig tree is useless. It is not bearing any fruit. And so he's just had enough. And I think what's most um, obvious of a symbol of the fig tree to the Israelites is that it was promising, but when you looked into it, there was no fulfillment. Promising, but no fulfillment. And I think like, what an obvious uh, analogy for us as the church where like, we, we, we appear a certain way in front of people. Right? and we like can dress up for church, but then throughout the week we can cuss out someone or whatever, and then it's like, oh, it's promising, but literally no fulfillment. Right? You looked good on the outside, you had some leaves, but wow, when I really looked for fruit, and didn't find any. So from a distance, the, the Israelites, like I said, the temple's going, things seem fine, and Jesus is like, no, it's not fine. Jesus uniquely says in uh, the Sermon on the Mount as well, because I think sometimes people think, oh, then Jesus is here to like get rid of the law, right? Like he's, he's going to be better. Forget the law. The, the point of the law is purposeless. And we know that he says, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And Jesus literally did not only as a, like a law-abiding Jewish citizen, but also just the Savior and showing us how to be human. And so he takes the law and the spirit of the law and the heart of the law, and he's like, this is why God created this. It's to help you. It's not to hinder you. And I know a lot of times people are like, oh, I don't want to follow the rules and whatever. But it's like, the, the, the beauty and freedom within the rules is God's heart, and it's, it's there for a purpose, not only for yourself, but for everyone. And so Jesus is not throwing away the law. He's fulfilling it through the way that he loves and lives. And, and I think the best way to describe this is uh, through this tri-diagram. Is that Venn diagram? Is two tri, right? Maybe that, is that right? I don't know. Tri-diagram. And I just kind of want to show us here, this is what I'm going to call the ortho tri-diagram. Ortho means right. If you want to just write right, you can. Uh, but basically, we're going to have three circles here. I'm going to try and draw these well here. Okay, and let's put Jesus Jesus in the middle. He's got it all down, right? But there are basically three areas I'm going to boil down our soul, okay? Now, soul, a lot of people think, oh, it's like this weird supernatural thing inside your body and like it. Doctors can't find it, but it's there. Soul in the Hebrew is not anything close to that. Soul just means your entire being, everything about you. Everything. Your physical, your mind, your heart, everything. So soul is literally this entire thing. The, the word is uh, nefesh, if you're curious. And so there's three, there's three areas that I just want to sum up the, kind of our, our formation becoming like Jesus. There's orthodoxy, okay, which means right thinking. So right, and then doxy is thinking, okay? Now, if you thought about, like, the Orthodox Church, they basically named their, their church Right Thinking Church. What, what a flex, right? But that's what they did. So they're the Orthodox Church. They are the right thinking. Everyone else is wrong, but uh, they got us good. Uh, the ortho... Orthopathy, okay? Pathy stands for feeling, okay? Someone's like, oh, boy, <laughs> Feeling, okay? And then the last one is orthopraxy, which is right doing. Okay? Like I said, if you don't want to put ortho, it's okay. I won't judge you. But this is just the words. So So we think about this as, as we follow Jesus. Jesus has right feeling, right thinking, right doing, okay? Through his entire ministry, we see that. Different components of it different in different stories, different teachings, things like that. Now, as we follow Jesus, we are to put our lives in every area and surrender him to this idea. And so whether it's like, um, you know, any area of our life, you know, if I was to put like um, financial, Uh, let's do family, vocational, right? Like your job, I kind of have it here, but, you know, intellectual, right? Your mind. So you can just keep going with this. I'm just giving you um, some ideas you take these areas and you filter them through this, and this is what our soul, our nefesh, is to become more like Jesus, to become the image of Jesus. Now, what's interesting about these is that if you have only one, or let's even say two, you're still missing it, and you're still missing the point. And so what, what we have is people who are not fully complete in the image of Jesus. So you have people, let's say you're thinking and you're feeling right, but you're not doing anything. This is, there's, there's no better way to describe this uh, than just a spiritual bum. So, Francis Chan, uh, this is Francis Chan's words, not mine, but he calls them obese Christians. It's people who sit on the couch and know the things and feel the right, but they don't want to do anything about it. They just sit there and they consume and they eat and they don't move. These are people who claim to follow Jesus, but don't literally do anything about it. They're not involved in the church. They don't serve. They don't love. They're not generous. Like, like they're not actually doing any of the things that Jesus commands them to do. So I'm going to just put spiritually lazy, so it seems a little softer but you can put whatever you want. Spiritually lazy, okay? Then you have people who have right feeling and right doing, but not right thinking, meaning they don't like care about theology or whatever. And this, this can be a wide camp of people because this can be like your mystics who are just like observing everything and, as God and, and whatever, right? And it can be pretty dangerous. You also have people who have this, are the spiritual buffet, which means they just take a little bit of everything. They're like, I want to follow Jesus, but I also really like astrology and crystals, and Buddhism, right? And they just take it all and they throw it all together and it makes this buffet. And then you also have, in the modern sense, humanists. So these are people who really believe that they just follow their heart of of what is good for flourishing of humans. And so you might be doing good things, like you might be helping out the poor, but you you have no idea, like, why you're doing it. You're not doing it for the right reasons. You're just doing it, right? So that's this example. And the last example, is going to be what Jesus is specifically addressing at this time. And this is, this is Pharisees. This is Pharisaicism. And what that is, is Pharisees, we call them that, because um, we, we call it being a Pharisee, because Pharisees, they had the entire Torah memorized. I mean, you will never be as astute as a Pharisee. I will never memorize. I mean, I'm trying to memorize one verse a week. <laughs> These guys had hundreds, thousands of verses memorized. I mean, they knew everything. They were brilliant. And you might be thinking, yeah, they knew it, but they didn't have right thinking. And you'd be surprised if you read the Gospels. A lot of them actually kind of thought Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't like the way at which he was coming. It, it, set, it, un, it, it unsettled their comfort and their pride and their position, and so they just couldn't have it. You'd be surprised at how many of them, like even Nicodemus and John 3, are like kind of understanding it. Or Caiaphas, who's like, I think Jesus needs to die for the Jewish people. right? So we, we see them. They do start to think it, right? but their, their feelings and their pride and everything... But they are also doing the right, right things, right? They're fasting three days a week. They're in prayer all the time. They're giving to the poor. I mean, they're blowing trumpets when they do it, but they're giving to the poor, right? So this is, this is sort of where we can find ourselves, and, and we're still just incomplete. And Jesus here is saying, Israel, he's like, you guys are just missing it in so many ways, and, and I think most commonly in this moment, he's addressing the Pharisees and the religious leaders because they're in charge of the people, right? They kind of administer the culture. They create new laws that surround the other laws, right? And then even the Pharisees are arguing with the Sadducees about is, is the prophets like real and, and valid and is there resurrection, right? All this big stuff. So it's just a mess. And from the outside, you're like, oh, you know, we're doing okay, we have the temple, sacrifices are being made. But Jesus is like, no, no, you are missing the point, and you need to take this serious. And I think that this really helps us understand in our own hearts, like, where do we really see um, our, our souls coming under the lordship of Jesus in all areas? We all have holes and gaps. And this takes us to the second part of this passage of the fig tree that makes sense. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed. And they say, how did this fig tree wither so quickly? You know, they're like, this is a miraculous sign, right? And then Jesus just ignores the reality. of the, the, He's like, truly, I tell you, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what is done to the fig tree, but even you say to this mountain, be lifted and thrown into the sea and it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe it, you will receive you, you listen to it, you're like, that's kind of confusing. Let's talk about the fig tree. And Jesus is like, no, no, let's talk about prayer. You know, like, it doesn't make any sense. And some scholars, you know, they, they argue about what mountain really means. Like, is it just ambiguous mountain? Because he said that before, and they were on another mountain, and he was pointing to a mountain. And, but here, what we know is they're, they're on essentially a mountain. Jerusalem's sort of on a hill, valley, right? And I think, and what a lot of scholars would agree, is that Jesus is referring to the Temple Mount, that it's on this hill, and they're overlooking, and they're seeing it. Because in 37 to 40 years from then, the temple will be destroyed again, brick by brick. Literally everything taken down except one part of the wall, which is what the Jewish people like love today. I mean, like, I wouldn't say they worship it, but like it is because it's a traditional temple wall. And, um, but, but that, I mean, he's hes literally saying like this mountain is gonna be thrown into the sea. It's gonna be gone. And he's he's referring to that as though their faith will do that. Which doesn't make any sense. You're thinking as a Jew, why would I want to destroy the place at which we most experience God? And the reason is because Jesus is coming and he is the true temple. He is the living temple that will not only sacrifice himself, will resurrect, will will beat death and sin and have this Holy Spirit that he talks about later come onto the scene and this will become the the walking temple in your hearts. And so he's saying, the temple, like, it's going to be gone. This is just a building, but here, this is where it will reside. And he's saying, through faith, you have to you know, put yourself into trusting that and believing that. And the Pharisees just did not want anything to change. Job security, right? Honestly. If you think about the last three uh, things he's done, he has this Palm Sunday triumphal entry. And, and the leaders are like, oh my gosh, like we can't do anything. And, and then he goes into the temple and he starts flipping all the tables. He stops the process of, the, of what the priests were supposed to do at the biggest time of the year. And they're like, what are you doing raining on our parade, right? And then he's healing people in the temple. And then they're challenging him, and they, they can't get this guy out. And he's just, he's ruining their jobs, honestly. And it, pretty much every Pharisee and every Sadducee was wealthy. They came from wealth and money. And then they used that as an ability to be, like, basically a politician. They're basically politicians. And so they're, they're like, we're not we're not losing money on this. Like, like, job security, right? So they're they're fighting with him. They don't want it to be true. They want to argue with him. And, and so then they get in this fight in verses 23 to 27. And this is... This is just a great passage. Now, after Jesus entered the temple courts, so if he cursed the fig tree. He says, look, this mountain's going to be thrown. Surely enough, like whatever you have in prayer, like, like step into faith. It'll be given to you. Then he goes into the, temple, into the temple courts. The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? I mean, imagine like, you know, let's give them some credit. Imagine you're working at an ice cream shop and you're scooping some ice cream and someone just comes around the counter and just starts like making their ice cream. And you're like, Who said you could do that, right? Because you're just an employee. You're not the manager. You know, you're like, did did Frank say you could do that, right? And they're like, I don't know, Frank. I'm just making my own ice cream. Like, it would be offensive, right? You'd be like, this guy should leave. He should not be allowed. I don't even think he washed his hands. He shouldn't be doing this, right? And so Jesus is going into the temple, and he's doing that. He's scooping his own ice cream, and they're like, whoa, dude, who told you you could do this, right? And at this point, they're very angry, and they're trying to pin him because they're hoping he'll say, well, you know, I can do whatever I want. That's their hope. He answers them with an on-answer, and he says, I will ask you also one question. If you answer me, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. And he asks the question, Where did John, John the Baptist's baptism come from? Was it from heaven or from people? And then they discuss this among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, then he'll say, well, well, then why did you not believe this or believe him? But if we say from people, we fear the crowd, for they consider John to be a prophet. So they answered Jesus, and they said, we don't know, which you do know. You know, you just don't want to be true. Then they said, not, and he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. It would appear as though Jesus is not answering the question. However, by asking that very question, he did answer the question. Where does his authority come from? It comes from God the Father, who has a forerunner, John the Baptist, who preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus' first words in ministry, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. He's basically reminding them, hey, John came and, and through through God's authority through John, like he was my my forerunner and was proclaiming this. And so when he asks them, what did you think about John's baptism? Right, everybody behind him and around him knows John was a prophet because we cannot deny the things that were happening and Jesus' miracles, he just healed some guys yesterday on these courts, like he's something, which means John's something. And so if they say from heaven, it would usurp their own fight against Jesus. It would essentially allow Jesus to keep doing what he's doing, right? But they say, well, now it was from people. Then everyone around him is going to be like, what do you mean, dude? He just did all these crazy things, right? So Jesus puts them in a bind, and they walk away (laughs) in their own house, right, in the temple. And so Jesus, can you just feel the tension, right? Another mess up by the religious leaders in their own house. You hate to lose home games, right? Like it's the worst. And they just keep losing. They should—they should not have home games. Maybe they play better away. But Jesus is literally just saying, "This is my authority. Here's where it comes from." And at the end of the day, it sounds a little bit like crazy. You're like, because if you're the Pharisees, you're like, "What do you mean, God the Father?" There's just Yahweh, one true God. What do you mean, the Father? And it reminds me of this episode of Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson, who's pretty libertarian in the show, wants to slaughter a pig and do like a pig roast in the park. And this like park ranger comes up and he's like, "Hey, do you have a permit for that?" And he's like, "Oh yeah." And he pulls out this piece of paper and it says, "I can do what I want, Ron." <laughs> I feel like that is the like how it would feel when this guy comes into the temple, it starts healing people, teaching people about the kingdom. That's kind of contrary to what you've been doing, and he's like, "I can do what I want, right?" Like it's it's infuriating on their end, and that's the Jesus that we're getting in this week, and that's the Jesus that we see is 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 just he's basically just creating a level of human chaos so that we can truly see the cards of everyone around him, right? Like we can see the humanity and the failure in the religious leaders, in the Jewish people, in Rome, in the Gentiles who are seeking, right? All of these people are all coming with these opinions, and it's causing chaos. And so as we transition into a time of formation, we're going to do something a little bit unique. I want to cover two questions about uh, this idea of fruit, and then I want us to think through kind of this lens. So the first question that I think is just the most basic general question about this fig tree passage is, are there signs of Jesus' fruit in my life? That's like the most base level question. Is there fruit in my life? If I'm to look at my life, I'm going to have others look at my life. Is there fruit in my life? Now, immediately in your brain, you might be thinking, the second question, how do I know what fruit is? Right? Like, If you grew up in church, is it just going to church on Sunday? Is it just giving this much money? Is it just being nice to this person and putting up with them for five minutes? Like where, how do I, how do I even know if I have fruit? Which is part of the reason why I, right, thinking matters, right? And you can just, and, and this matters, right? So I, I want to say that fruit, a lot of fruit, is not super quantifiable. You want to put it on a checklist, you want to do all these things. Yes, those things are important. But no, those things are not all there is to it, right? Otherwise, you'd just be like, here's a checklist, right? What does he say? He says basically the most important commandment is the Shema, which is literally your entire soul is to love God. That's a pretty big thing. It's not like do these four things, right? So we know that, that fruit can be uh hard to necessarily dissect. And it's hard for me as a pastor because my job a little bit is like to diagnose people's fruit and be like, hey, have you thought about like this thing? Or I'm not seeing fruit in this area. Can you tell me what that why? Or sometimes I see I see fruit, but I have no idea what your heart is behind it. So I'm like, well, maybe like they're doing this for the right reasons. Maybe they're not, right? So it's it's a, in order to really help people with their fruit, it's a very intimate, vulnerable thing. You really got to see people not at their best, and everybody brings their best on Sundays, right? I wear nice clothes on Sundays. I don't throughout the week. You know, my other jeans had throw up all over them from my, my daughter. So, like, how, like, what is fruit? And so I I gave some just I just gave some parameters. I just want to think about it like throwing pasta on the wall, like. I'm just trying to get some stuff sticking for you because there is like there is maybe specific, quantifiable Jesus commanded us to do this, and this is fruit. But I, I think more so we need to just think about in all these areas of our lives, how is this becoming under the Lordship of Jesus? So for instance, I have some related to church and spiritual is I think fruit of being a part of Jesus' body is that you you humble yourself consistently to others in accountability. If you're not a part of a local church community and you're not, hu- you're not humbly entering into accountability and relationship with them, then I don't think that you have any fruit in that area. Another fruit, I think, is practicing hospitality. If you have people over for dinner, your friends, your family, the stranger that we're called to invite, that is a fruit of following Jesus is, is hospitality. Another one is giving of your time, talents, and your money to the local and global church. If you're not investing in the only thing that matters in the long term, which is kingdom impact, then there's no fruit... In that area. And I think another fruit is having a diverse group of people around you. I think that if you're around the same people, and I'm not just even talking racially or ethnically, I'm talking like, does this person have a disability? Is this person not interested in anything you're interested in? Is this person obnoxious, right? If you are willingly in communion with them, I think that's fruit. I think that you should be frustrated by people sometimes because that means you're not just hanging out with the people you love and that are easy. Jesus says, even the sinners do that. They hang out with people they like. Good for you. Are you around hard people and are you are you taking the challenge of living among them for the long haul? Do you serve another fruit is just serving people, serving people with no agenda, serving the lost, serving your neighbor. Um, and then another section, like I said, vocational is your job. Uh, are you maintaining complete Jesus integrity in your dealings, your relationships? mission, and pursuit of honoring God in your job. Meaning, when I look at you are, you, are you cutting corners? Are you lying about things? Are you being deceptive about things in your job? Are you fighting to have honest relationships with people in your workplace? Right? Like, th- those are fruit. Like, I can, like, we can see fruit of you being honest and having integrity behind your job. Marriage is another great example. Fruit of marriage is, are you treating your spouse like Jesus would in Ephesians 5? Are you willing to be like, I'm wrong? Are you willing to apologize? That's fruit of following Jesus. A fruit of your marriage is intimacy in God honoring sex, believe it or not. Like, is your sex life honoring God? And that is fruit. A fruit of your marriage is kids who understand God's covenant love because of your marriage covenant love, right? Can, the kid, can your kids grasp that idea? That's fruit if they can, because it means they've seen it from you. Singleness. How about this? The fruit of singleness. Being content and using it as a gift, actually leveraging it as a good thing, that is a fruit. If you are constantly complaining about being single, you're not going to bear fruit in being single, and singleness is a gift. Physical, am I honoring God with my body? Is there fruit in the way that I maintain sexual integrity in my relationships? Not engaging in gluttony or, gl- or drunkenness, caring about just health in my body, right? All these type of things. I could go on and on and on, right? There's, there's a million things that's that's fruit for us just following Jesus. And like I said, a lot of these things are hard because you could be doing the right thing and you could be thinking the right thing, but your heart's not with it, right? Or you could be knowing what you need to do, feeling right about it, and then you're just not doing anything, right? It's shocking how we have a retreat coming up in a few weeks and a lot of people have been taking the survey. It's been really cool because we're focusing on sex and money, right? Two things everybody could do more of, right? And so we're, we're, uh, we're focusing on that and people, like, we basically asked, how much do you know about this and how much do you actually practice this? Meaning, you know this thing about money. I know it. Do I practice it? And, I mean, across the board, it's anonymous, but it pulls all the data. Basically, every category was, I know this thing, I don't do it. I know it more than I do it. And so I think we have this plague here, and I would actually argue in America, what it is is I maybe know what to do, right? And I maybe feel, but I'm not doing it. And I think the biggest reason why is because we, we a lot of times we let our feelings dictate whether we do something or not. We've we've been kind of beat into uh, the last 20 years, Pharisaicism where well, I don't want to do something if my heart's not in it, right? If my feelings aren't, if I don't feel like doing it, and I and I want to I want to caution you that's like the most dangerous thing that we can we, we jump from that end to the other end, and then what happens is well I don't want to do it so I'm not going to do it, and I'm like what what is the point of fasting? I've never in my life wanted to be like. I'm so pumped to not eat food and feel terrible and take a bunch of ibuprofen and drink water and not talk to anyone. Like, that's never, I'm never excited. I've never been excited about fasting because the point is you're really renouncing feeling good to remind yourself that your true nutrition is spiritually. It's from Jesus. If you're a parent, imagine if you're like, tell your spouse, you're like, hey, I just want to let you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not feeling changing diapers, so I just, I just think I'm going to take a pass for the next three years, right? Like, that's ridiculous, Right? I mean, think about, it. I've never wanted to change a diaper, and I've changed hundreds, and Sarah has changed hundreds. And if we both were like, ah, we're just not feeling it, I mean, literally, CPS would be called on us, right? It's like you went three years without changing diapers. If you're single, how about this? Maybe you don't resonate with the kids' one. Maybe you work out. Has there ever been a time where you wake up and you're like, man, I don't feel like working out? But you, you just go do it, right? Like, there's plenty of things we don't, we don't feel like doing, and we're so worried about, oh, becoming a Pharisee, that we don't do anything. And, and I think what, what Jesus is, is saying is, like, is there fruit? Like, he's just, he's just boiling it down to the simple question, is there fruit in your life? Imagine if Jesus went up to the fig tree, and the fig tree's like, sorry, Jesus, I just didn't feel like bearing fruit today, right? I just didn't feel like it. It'd be like, what? That's your whole point. So as we close, I, I want us to do a couple things in answering these questions up here. Uh, the first one is, is, is just, is like I said broadly, um, am I... Am I bearing fruit? I Put those up there. Am I bearing, uh, what areas do I feel fruitless? And just thinking through that and then running it through the second question, which is this lens. Like, why? Why am I feeling fruitless? And what, what is in this that is just causing me to, to be fruitless? And this is assuming, like, if we follow Jesus, we run through this lens. That's what we put our lives into. If you're not, it's kind of a different game for you. But... Um, And the third one is the practical idea is what are the intentions and steps to foster strength in this area? And then the last one, if you realize, is actually an application. So what we're going to do is I want you to reflect on these three, and then you're actually going to get prayer from someone, whether they're beside you. We have people in the back who would pray for you, uh, who will be up there. I'll be up here if you want prayer. But basically process through these and then bring this before someone and just have them pray for you and vice versa. You can pray for each other and just put this before the Lord because this at the end of the day is all not, it's not on our own, it's not in our own strength. Jesus dies and resurrects and brings the Holy Spirit who's in our hearts and can help this. So bring it before the Lord. Like I said, if you believe it, like receiving it and, and that idea of prayer being this instrument of faith. So I'm going to give you time. We're going to give you quite a few minutes t- of time. And then you can jump into prayer with people and we'll just give a space for that. And then we'll, I'll come back up and talk about uh, the bread and cup. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.